Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. And today I'm joined by Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who is a consultant cardiologist at the York Teaching Hospital and has a specialist interest in cardiac imaging. And he has a popular social media presence and can often be seen doing YouTube and Facebook videos on cardiac related matters. And he's also got a fantastic collection of shirts, which I'm very jealous of, actually. (laughs) Thank you. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and he's done a number of videos on all sorts of cardiac issues like palpitations, anxiety, ectopics, AFib. But his most popular one is on magnesium, which he's got over one and a half million views on. And that post had 7000 comments on. And this is the subject we're going to be talking about today. So welcome again, Dr. Gupta. Thank you for having me, Paul. Yeah, it's great to speak with you again. So can you tell me why you did a video on magnesium? Because it doesn't immediately spring to mind as being a cardiac subject. Yeah, I think it all started because I was interested in talking about heart palpitations. And in particular, one of the commonest heart rhythm disorder causing heart palpitations is something called ectopic heartbeats. These are transient extra beats that tend to occur virtually in everyone but tend to be very uh, much noticed by those people who carry a degree of anxiety. And when they happen, they can be really, really scary. The problem uh, with these is that although we recognize them not to be dangerous, they are incredibly scary for patients. When the patient comes to the doctor, the doctor will say, oh, you've just got a few atopic beats. They're not dangerous. Don't worry about it. Because the patient can't understand this, he can't understand, he only knows what it feels like, There's very, there was very little support for such patients. You know, no one really talked about ectopics because they were not dangerous. So in some way, they were not important to the medical field because they were not dangerous. But for patients, and particularly those patients who too tend to be anxious about their health anyway, it was really something very big. So I felt that I could explain ectopics in a way that you know made sense to me. And because I did that, I did a video on ectopic heartbeats. A lot of people responded very favorably to that video. They really felt that um, I was providing them with information that they hadn't been provided by their own healthcare practitioners. Many of them had been suffering from ectopic beats for 20, 30 years. They developed chronic health anxiety as a result. Really, really terrible stories when um, you heard them. As I started doing more videos around ectopic heartbeats, I came across a bunch of people who talked about the fact that magnesium had helped their ectopic heartbeats. No one had really talked about it on a big scale. These were just anecdotal reports from people who said, well, I took some magnesium and it's really made a big difference. And I thought, well, it would be interesting to look into this to see whether it really works. Does it really work? And And if it does, maybe I should talk about it. I then went and did some uh, reading around the subject. And as a doctor, you want to feel like you have some kind of scientific evidence to back up your recommendations. And I found a very, very small study in Brazil where they used magnesium. They gave magnesium to patients with ectopic heartbeats, and they got some really good results. And they describe 80 to 90% of patients feeling better. 
And although it was a really tiny study and it was in an obscure journal, it gave me enough to be able to feel like I could talk about it. And I said, well, you know, there is this and here is a study which talked about it. The problem is, the minute you mention something like this, people will say, well, we want proper studies. We want bigger studies. Those bigger studies will never be done because magnesium is never going to make money for anyone. And therefore, here was something that did have some kind of evidence base. The next step was to try and just recommend it to people because, to my mind, I was confident that it was a safe supplement to use. So I thought to myself, well, why don't I talk about it with two people uh, and say, look, there was a small study which suggested it was beneficial. You could try it. It's not dangerous. If suddenly you find that things are better, then it's worked for you. And if you don't feel any better, then it's maybe not for you. And on the basis of that video, a lot of people started using magnesium. And I got a ton, a ton of replies, a ton of comments saying, well, you know, when I started taking that magnesium, my palpitations got better. I spoke to my colleagues at work about this, and they said, well, how can you recommend this? There's no really big evidence. And I said to myself, well, do I really need the evidence? Because if the person in front of me who comes to me with a complaint says his problem is better after taking it, then that's all the evidence I need. We are prescribing this or we are recommending this to improve a person's quality of life. And quality of life is a very individual thing, and it has to be measured by the, that individual's own yardstick. And so I started uh, recommending it, and a lot of people responded amazingly to it because they felt, gosh, no one has talked to us about these supplements. When you look, the FDA, the, the everywhere, we are chronically depleted of magnesium. This is well-published. It's uh, well recognized that three quarters of the population are deficient in magnesium. So it made sense. When I started uh, recommending it, people said they slept better. People said that they felt calmer. People felt that their ectopics got less. Some people found that their other heart rhythm disturbances like atrial fibrillation got less. Anecdotes, these are not big studies, but how many anecdotes do you need you feel convinced that it's worth trying out. And that's what's happened with magnesium in me. Can we just go over what is exactly a palpitation and what is an ectopic? What's actually going on in, in our hearts when we, we feel those? I'm, I don't think I've ever really had palpitations so much, but after my cardiac arrest, I was very much aware of what I called misbeats. Is that what an ectopic is? Or ectopic. It, the the misbeats where you describe a skipping or a fluttering or a misbeat followed by a big thud, those are ectopic beats. So palpitation is a symptom. Okay, any time the patient says my heart feels like it's doing something it shouldn't be doing or it feels odd, that's a palpitation. Different heart rhythm disturbances can cause palpitations. So you may even get palpitation when your heart is not doing anything funny, but it just feels like your heart's doing something funny. So for example, if someone comes and scares you, you know, from behind, your heart will beat really hard and really fast, and that would be a palpitation. But at that time, your heart's not doing anything odd. It's just responding to all the adrenaline that's suddenly been produced in your body. Then you have other heart rhythm disturbances, which may manifest as palpitation. And the commonest by far are ectopic heartbeats, where what tends to happen there is that your heart will beat and then it relaxes for a certain amount of time. When it relaxes for a certain, let's say it relaxes for a second and then it beats, so it'll fill up with a second's worth of blood whilst it's relaxing and then it will contract and push out that second's worth of blood. 
then it will start relaxing. Now, if before it reaches that second of relaxation, let's say after half a second, an extra beat comes in from somewhere, then this time the heart has only pumped out half a second's worth of blood because the extra beat came in after half a second, so it only had half a second. So that will feel like a missed beat. Then to compensate, the normal beat comes in later after one and a half seconds, and now the heart has had to fill up with one and a half seconds worth of blood, which it pumps out, and that then feels like a big thud. So that's traditionally what ectopics feel like. They feel like boom, 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 boom. Yeah, I've definitely had those. You said uh, several times that they're not considered dangerous. Why is that? Because it sounds like it could be a problem, or could it not lead into uh, further arrhythmia? Well, the the reason they're not dangerous usually is because they're non-sustained. Ectopics, by definition, tend to be followed by normal beats. So what, you just get them in isolation, you don't? Exactly. So you'll get that extra beat, and then after a little while, you get that big thud, which is the normal beat. So because the heart is a pump, and when you have an ectopic, any heart rhythm disturbance means one thing and one thing only. It means that the heart as a pump is not as, as efficient. Okay, so the efficiency of the heart is compromised during that heart rhythm disturbance. So if you've got something which is only going on for a second, followed by normal beats, the inefficiency is non-sustained inefficiency. It's followed by normal beats. The heart becomes efficient again. Sustained heart rhythm disturbances are where you get one abnormal beat followed by another abnormal beat followed by another abnormal beat for, let's say, you know, 10 minutes. There you've got 10 minutes worth of inefficiency. So that's why ectopics in general are not dangerous because they represent a non-sustained heart rhythm disturbance as opposed to things like atrial fibrillation, ventricular tachycardia, which are sustained. I see. So are are ectopics a symptom of an underlying problem, whether that be in the heart muscle or elsewhere in the body? Sure. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that ectopics happen. So if you take 100 people off the street and do a 24-hour monitor on them, you will find that on their monitor, 60 out of the 100 will have some ectopics in a 24-hour period. So they're very, very common. These are people who don't feel a thing. They're just getting about their own their lives normally. They have no symptoms. But if you do a monitor, you'll see some ectopics. So they occur normally. It is true to say that if you have a diseased heart, if you have a structural problem with your heart, let's say you have a cardiomyopathy, let's say you have scar in your heart, let's say you have a weaker heart, then the heart is more likely to be more irritable. And therefore, you may get even more ectopics, significantly more ectopics. And that is why the first thing we do when we have a person who is getting ectopics is to make sure that the heart is structurally normal. We do that by doing an ECG and doing an echocardiogram, a heart scan. And if those are fine, then we turn around and say, we think you have a structurally normal heart. Therefore, your ectopics are not a symptom of a diseased heart. The next question then is, if they're not a symptom of a diseased heart, what else could they be? And the answer is that there were some interesting studies done where they took a bunch of people who suffered from health-related anxiety, and they strapped them to a monitor, and they proceeded to make them more anxious. And as these people got more anxious, they got more ectopics on their monitor. So yes, you know, it's interesting, for example, you mentioned that, you know, after, after you were unwell, you got some misbeats. That can simply 
of course, it could be due to the fact that if you had a cardiomyopathy or something like that, you may get ectopics as a result of that, but more likely because of the trauma and the stress and anxiety that this whole thing may have caused you. I see, I see. Yeah, that does make sense because they have dissipated over time and I've become more relaxed and uh, chilled about what happened, as it were. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so can we look at the actual magnesium? What is magnesium and, and why is it important to the body and the heart? Okay, so magnesium is a essential mineral. It's a mineral and an electrolyte. It's, I think, the fourth most abundant mineral in the body. It's necessary for electrical activity in the heart and the brain. It's a cofactor in more than 300 reactions within the body. The daily recommended daily allowance is 400 to 420 milligrams for men and 310 to 360 milligrams for women. But our daily intake is far less than this. Most people take between 240 and 370 milligrams at most, and therefore 75% of the population in the Western world takes in less magnesium than is recommended. Once we have ingested the magnesium, 30 to 40% is absorbed from our gut and our bowel, and some is excreted through our kidneys, but then our kidneys try and reabsorb it when we're deficient. The other thing to say about magnesium, which is really, really important, is that the blood tests we have for it are not very accurate. And they don't give a true reflection of how much total body magnesium we have. And that is why a lot of people will come to me and say, well, I've had my magnesium levels checked. They're okay. And I say to them, well, it's still worth trying a magnesium supplement because you can't rely on the blood test. And we are magnesium deficient because we now take in less than we should. This is because of modern farming methods, which serve to deplete the magnesium in soil. Processing of food depletes magnesium further. We absorb less of it from our stomach because, you know, a lot of patients, for example, are on proton pump inhibitors for their stomach, and that reduces acid production, and acid is necessary for absorption of magnesium. And so, by far and away, the commonest medication that is prescribed these days are PPIs, Losec, Omeprazole, that kind of stuff, and they reduce magnesium absorption. Carbonated beverages reduce the absorption of magnesium and can make the problem worse. We're using up a lot more magnesium than we were. So things like sugar, a lot more sugar in our foods and magnesium is required to break the sugar down. So we're using up a lot more magnesium that way. Stress, sleep, disturbance will all get rid of magnesium from the body. And uh, things like coffee, tea will make us excrete more magnesium in our urine. So there's loads of reasons why so many of us are deficient in magnesium. You mentioned about the food that we eat and the farming methods depleting the amount of magnesium in our food. But what, what food should we be looking for? Because obviously I'll, I'll guess food is the best way of getting magnesium into your body rather than necessarily taking a supplement. I think greens are an important way to get magnesium. Nuts are an important way to get magnesium in our body. You know, so almonds, spinach, cashew nuts, peanuts, trying to eat organically grown foods, whatever, you know, whether you can rely on what is organic or not is another matter, but avoiding processed foods and eating as far as you're aware, organically grown foods from local growers is a good way to get the magnesium into the body. But to my mind, most people benefit from taking in a supplement as well. You mentioned that a blood test is not a good way of telling 
whether you're deficient. Is, is there any other way of telling if you're deficient? Are there any obvious signs? You know, the reality is it's one of those uh, deficiencies which isn't reflected in outwardly major, major issues. But there are some tests that are more accurate. So you can measure something called the red cell magnesium content, but very few places offer that test. So most places, they just do a blood test. And if you go to, you know, local doctors, etc., they'll just do the blood test for magnesium, which is no good at all. I think it's one of those things where the symptoms of a deficiency are very kind of nonspecific. And this is only once you start taking a supplement, if you suddenly find, oh, gosh, you know, I'm feeling calmer, and I'm sleeping better. And uh, a lot of people will say that they get cramps in their legs at night. And if they take a magnesium supplement, the cramps go away. What confused me when I was looking is that there are so many different types of magnesium. Are you able to run through sort of some of the main types and the ones that perhaps a heart patient should be looking for in particular? Yeah, there are a lot of uh, different preparations. The common preparation you will come across is something called magnesium oxide. And magnesium oxide is, is not a good preparation to take because the bioavailability is only 4%. So what you take in, you only absorb about 4% of what you're taking in. And it has a propensity to cause a loose stomach. And so one of the side effects of taking magnesium is loose stool. So magnesium oxide is one that I recommend against taking. But there are other preparations like magnesium citrate, magnesium glycinate, magnesium taurate. Any other form of magnesium is fine. You can you don't actually have to take it orally. You can take it topically. So you can have oil and rub oil into your skin and it can be absorbed transdermally as well. In my experience, I recommend magnesium citrate or magnesium taurate as a really good supplement for heart palpitations. Is, is there any price difference in those products or those types of magnesium? The way it started with me was a lot of people came to me and said, well, can you recommend a preparation? And the, the preparation that was studied in the study from Brazil is no longer in production. So no one seems to be producing that particular preparation. So I decided to recommend magnesium taurate, and a lot of people came back to me and said, you know, that magnesium taurate, it's done me a lot of good, I feel better. So I said, look, that's the one to go for. Unfortunately, then I discovered that the company that was making it had raised their prices greatly. And I started recommending magnesium citrate in the UK. We have a, a health food store called Holland and Barrett, and you can buy magnesium citrate and it's about five or six pounds, something like that. So it's not too expensive at all. And, and that seems to work as well as any other preparation. What, what form would that come in? Is that a tablet or is it a powder? I think it's a, I think it's a capsule. And for people who don't like taking tablets or have got a handful of tablets to take anyway, do you know, if there, are there any other ways that you can just... You can buy the magnesium aspartate sachets so that you can mix them in water. And that's a reasonable way to do it. You can open the capsules and put the powder in and mix it with water. And that's another way to do it. Or topical magnesium, magnesium oil. And... What sort of dosage should people be taking of this? Would it be one size fits all or does it uh, depend on your symptoms? I generally say start with the recommended dose on the tin. You know, so the preparation you buy, take the recommended dose because we know that at that dose it's going to be safe. Now, the reality is with magnesium, you know, it has a... a 
you can take uh, higher doses and not come to harm, as opposed to something like potassium, for example. With potassium, potassium has a very narrow kind of uh, normal range in the body. If you go very high, it can be dangerous. If you go low, it can be very dangerous. But magnesium has a much wider scope. So I normally start off by magnesium citrate, 200 milligrams daily. Magnesium taurate, 125 milligrams twice a day. But any of the preparations, if you take the recommended dose on the box, then that's a great place to start. You mentioned with magnesium oxide that you could get loose stools. Are there any other sort of side effects that you might get from some of the other types of magnesium? I haven't come across any, is the truth. It is just the loose stool that I have come across. Obviously, people who have kidney damage or, you know, in those people, you want to be a little bit more careful because they're not excreting as well as they should. But it is mainly the loose stools that I've come across as a problem. Having said that, most people tolerate the other forms of magnesium really well. Magnesium glycinate is probably the easiest on the stomach. As I mentioned earlier, people are probably taking a handful of medications already if they've had a had a serious heart issue. Are there any, is it contraindications that it shouldn't be taken with any of these tablets? And, and should they be going to their GP or cardiologist before starting on something like this? It's always a good idea for everyone to get the consent of their healthcare provider before starting anything because everyone's different. And, you know, when I sort of make a recommendation, it's impossible to know the specifics for every person who may be thinking about it. So I would always say, you know, there's no harm in trying it, but just make sure that your doctor's happy with you trying it. I have not really found a major contraindication. My patients take all sorts of medications and they can take a magnesium supplement and I've not really come across anyone who has suffered adversely as a result of taking the magnesium. Some people worry that it has a slight, a very tiny anticoagulant effect. And if you're taking anticoagulants, people worry about that. But again, a lot of my patients do and they've not come to any harm. But again, as you know, I would always reiterate that before taking any kind of supplement, make sure your doctor is happy with you doing so. So have you got anything else to sort of just sum up? Yeah, I think so. I think the reason I recommend magnesium is for quality of life. I don't know whether, you know, I don't recommend it because I think, oh, this will make you live longer. I don't know. There is no evidence. We don't know. But I think that trying it out and seeing if your quality of life improves in some way. And if it does, then that is what you were taking it for. And if it doesn't, then maybe it's not for you. But, you know, as again, you know, if, if for example, you don't sleep well, and you start taking a magnesium supplement, and you sleep better, well, that just is good for you. It improves your quality of life, it makes you a healthier person. If you're getting ectopic beats, and you take some magnesium supplements, and the ectopics get less, well, that's just improved your quality of life. So in that sense, I think it's worth trying. And uh, if you feel better, then great. You know, the problem is, very few people are going to go out and say, oh, take magnesium. You know, we are sort of a largely pharma-driven industry now. And so it is all the kind of the newest and most expensive medications. And the research and the kind of evidence base that we all crave for will never be accumulated for things like magnesium because there's no money. 
Okay, and my final question would be, if someone starts taking it, how soon would they notice any effect if there is going to be some for them? Usually, you know, within a week or two weeks, a lot of people come back and say, look, that's worked. I definitely think that's helped. So one to two weeks. And what's the sort of maximum time they should take it for? And if they haven't seen any effect and then... Four weeks. Four weeks. Yeah, if you've not noticed a benefit in four weeks, then I don't think it's working for you then. Okay, that's an absolutely brilliant session on magnesium, Dr. Gupta. Thank you for that, and I'll speak to you next time. Thank you. This concludes this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast, and I'd love to know what you think. And you can do that via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the website southerncardiacarrestuk.org. And you can find us by Googling Southern Cardiac Arrest UK or the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. If you have found value in this or other episodes, please help spread the word by leaving a review on your podcast provider, such as Apple or wherever is convenient. And don't forget, if you want to know more about Life After Cardiac Arrest, check out our books, Life After Cardiac Arrest on Amazon. Make sure you click subscribe and I'll speak to you next time.